like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. It's wonderful to see all of you. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we started just last week, we started a new series. We are in another of Paul's letters, the letter to the Ephesians, one of his most profound uh, letters. Hope you'll see that as we work through the passage today. Uh, but welcome to all of you. Uh, we will be meditating today, especially on chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Uh, let's hear God's word together. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess on the basis of your word that we have been richly blessed in Christ. Our sins have been pardoned. Through your initiative, you have claimed us as your children, and you have not withheld any good thing from us. But Father, so often in our unbelief, we fail to see what is before us. We fail to see your love in Jesus. We fail to see your goodness and be shaped by these realities. And so, Father, we are praying this morning that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see clearly just who you are and what you have accomplished for us. And we pray that our response would be gratitude, uh, reverent worship, and a life of obedience to you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would move powerfully in our midst through your Holy Spirit today and grant us light from above to believe what you've shown us of yourself. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. Amen. Uh, we know that the function of tour guides is to uh, point out interesting facts about the place that we're visiting or draw our attention to really beautiful views. You've got a good tour guide. They'll, talk, they'll tell you about the trees, the flora and the fauna. They'll draw your attention to that owl up there in the tree. They'll say, hey, look at that view, how lovely it is. They point things out and thus enrich your experience. And there's a sense in which that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is our tour guide pointing out the multifaceted grace of God in Jesus. Look at this, he says, look at that. Uh, last week, we started to unpack this uh, wonderfully long sentence, uh, beginning in verse 3, ending in verse 14. It's a long, intricate, meandering sentence, but every twist and turn in this sentence, every subordinate clause in this sentence introduces us to some fresh facet of God's goodness. And uh, this morning, we will conclude our reflection on this opening expression of praise and verses 3 through 14, and we will consider four things that God has done for us. 
And the goal of meditating on these four things is to respond to our God who has loved us so well. The goal of that is to praise him, uh, to do what the Apostle Paul does and adore. So the four things that I will be underscoring this morning are these. Number one, God has redeemed us. God has redeemed us through his Son. Number two, God has revealed his mystery to us. God has revealed his mystery to us. Number three, God has claimed us as his own. He's claimed us as his own. And number four, God has guaranteed our inheritance. Guaranteed our inheritance. Uh, You'll notice that this passage is structured around the persons of the Godhead and what each person of the Godhead does to bring about our salvation. So in the first six verses, there's an emphasis on what God the Father does to bring salvation to us. He decrees, he plans, he determines that salvation. Here in verse 7, we look at what God the Son does to bring about our salvation. And in the last two verses, we see what God the Holy Spirit does to bring about our salvation. As Christians, we are Trinitarian. We believe there is one God in three persons. And we confess with glad hearts that each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person has acted to bring about our redemption. What has God the Son done? Well, we're told in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption carries the idea of deliverance from bondage through the payment of a price. So in the ancient world, if you were kidnapped by pirates, that ha- this happened with some frequency in the ancient world, uh, a ransom would be paid to deliver you from captivity. Deliverance through the payment of a price. And God, through his son Jesus, has paid the ultimate price that we might be delivered from bondage of guilt, bondage of sin. The cost of our redemption is, is then spelled out. We have redemption through his blood. Nothing less than the perfect, spotless life of the Son of God was given for our deliverance from the guilt of our sin. There is no higher price that God could have given for our redemption than he, in fact, gave, even the spotless life of Jesus Christ. We cheerfully confess and should confess that our salvation is free in the sense that we do nothing to earn it, praise God. But our salvation is emphatically not free in terms of what it costs. It costs Jesus everything, though it is free to us. So the costliness of our redemption is underscored through his blood. And then the redemption is further described as the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. God, because of what his son has done, freely pardons those who trust in Jesus. Not just for some of their sins, but for all of their sins. One of the sweetest things in life when you've wronged someone is uh, when they come to you and they say, hey, I forgive you. I know what you did was wrong, but I'm letting it go. I've pardoned you for it. Those moments are sweet. Uh, But it is supremely sweet when the creator himself turns to you and says, I've pardoned you. I've taken all of your guilt away. You are forgiven. And that's the blessing that we have in Jesus, according to Paul. Through his death, through the free giving of his life, God pardons all of our trespasses. And notice that this forgiveness 
is not a stingy forgiveness. God sort of measuring exactly how much forgiveness everyone needs and giving us just the strict portion and no more. Uh, God's forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. This is a lavish, overflowing, super abundant forgiveness. It's a cup overflowing. When God has forgiven us, he has poured out forgiveness richly. This is not a miserly forgiveness. This is not giving us just the strict limit of what we need. He, God lavishly pours out all that we need. This is a way of underscoring the fact that there is enough grace in God to make the filthiest sinner clean. Do you believe that? No matter how wretched you are or how far you've fallen, there is enough grace in God to make you clean. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs famously said in his book, The Bruised Reed, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is grace in us enough for each of us. And so all of us are invited to receive that grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. The English novelist uh, and humorist P.G. Woodhouse um, once made the observation that when you're about 21, you can comfortably look back on your life, uh, analyze it, and you're fine because most of it is still future. But he says, right around 30, things get more complicated. Uh, you have to be very careful about scrutinizing your past too carefully. Because at 30, life is, quote, an uncomfortable mixture of future and past. A thing to be looked at only when the sun is high and the world full of warmth and optimism. <laughs> you, don't look at your life at 4 a.m. if you're past 30, you know. Make sure the sun is high. Life is full of optimism. And we know what he means. The more you live the, and the more things you have to regret and sigh over, the more clearly you see the discrepancy between what ought to have been and what has been. And that disparity between what should have been and what has been grieves us. It stings. The guilt of our failures is painful. That's what Woodhouse is getting at. The good not done, the love not shown, the opportunities not seized, the time wasted, all of that weighs on us. I listened to a pastor a few months ago in his 70s, who was saying, you know, when he was a younger pastor, uh, he would be in his study scribbling, writing his sermon, and occasionally his children would come in, and he would get out, you know, very brusque, don't bother me, I'm doing the Lord's work. You know, as a wiser man in his 70s, he saw the Lord's work was to be interrupted by his children and to give them his time and attention. And the thing is, you can't go back and change that, can you? It's done. There's no redos. Be nice if you get like three redos. Right? You, you probably know what you'd apply those redos to. Uh, but there, life gives us no redos. We can't go back and fix our mistakes. That guilt is there. That condemning finger stretched out in, in judgment for all time. Guilt is not something that we can take away ourselves. It's like that grease stain from the meatball in your khakis that, no matter how many th times you throw it into the washer, comes out, that stain is there. Modern technology hasn't reached a point where that stain can be taken out. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Uh, our efforts can't take away the guilt. It doesn't matter how much time goes by. The mere passage of time doesn't take away the guilt. Trying to do better doesn't take away that guilt. It's there. It's objective. The only hope that that guilt can be washed away is if God himself does something about it. Only the creator can wipe away the stain of sin. And the good news of this passage is that through Jesus, he's done exactly that. Jesus has drawn near so that at the cost of his life, we would be washed of all of our guilt and stains. 
Those this morning who want to be clean in the sight of God need look no further than his son, Jesus Christ. As the hymn reminds us, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is one fountain that can make sinners clean, and that fountain is Jesus. Have you gone to that fountain? Have you washed in that fountain? All those who come to Jesus this morning in childlike faith, who trust in him as their savior, who despair of washing their own guilt away, can find that cleansing and washing that we long for. And those who have experienced it should experience also a profound sense of relief and peace that we stand before God blameless and holy through Jesus. So as we survey the mercies of God, it's the first thing today that Paul underscores, we have redemption through Jesus. Second thing he notes is that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, verse nine. Uh, Making known to us the mystery of his will. And here, uh, Paul explains how it is that God lavished his grace upon us. In verse 8, there's a reference to God lavishing, richly pouring out his grace upon us. And he does that, we are told, with wisdom and insight. The idea is that God's grace isn't given to us haphazardly. One day God woke up and decided, hey, I know what I'll do. Give them grace. No, the idea is that God has bestowed grace upon us in Christ according to his plan. If you notice throughout this passage, there are like plan words, plan, purpose, determined, chosen, predestined, all of these plan words indicate that the distribution of grace in history was according to God's eternal purpose. There's a, there's a plan operating in the distribution of grace. And one way in which that grace expresses itself is in making known to us the mystery of his will. If you're reading through this, you should stop and be puzzled there. Like, what is the mystery of his will? What is that? Uh, Mystery in Paul frequently means that which was once hidden in the counsel of God, but has now been brought to light, has now been disclosed. So for example, if you read in chapter 3, Ephesians 3 verses 4 and 5, Paul says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Something that was hidden has now come to light through the apostles. Uh, So what exactly has God revealed? What is the content of the mystery? He explains that at the end of of verse 10. Before we get there, uh, it's important to note that the first part of verse 10 gives us the purpose or the reason that God makes the mystery of his will known. If you go to verse 10 and you're looking at the ESV as I'm doing, Uh, The word translated plan in the original Greek can mean plan or blueprint, you know, the blueprint according to which some action is done, but it can also have the idea of administering the plan, working to bring about the plan, that active meaning, acting according to a a plan to accomplish what is intended. And I think that's the nuance that is in view here. That word, the translated plan, is frequently used in uh, Greek literature in this period, Greek writings in this period, uh, when, when it used of God, it refers to God's arranging or ordering the universe. And it's likely that that active sense is here in view. The uh, New English translation captures it well when it says, it translates the first part of verse 10 this way, toward 
the administration of the fullness of the times. The idea here is that God is working in history, or ordering and orchestrating all things to bring about his climactic purpose. God is not the passive spectator of history watching it unfold, hoping it all works out, wringing his hands uh, that it'll all work out. God is orchestrating history in the periods of history to bring about his climactic intention. Now, this is significant because it gives us a biblical understanding of history. A popular secular view of history is that human history is all uh, sound and fury signifying nothing. There is no larger meaning or blueprint according to which things happen. Things just happen randomly. There is no divine plan or purpose. But according to this passage, God is at work not just in the lives of individuals, but in human history to bring about his culminating and climactic purpose. Now, what is that purpose? And what is the mystery that Paul has referred to? We're told at the end of verse 10. God's plan for history, for the fullness of time, the mystery that he's mentioned is to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God is working to bring all things under the scepter of King Jesus. One day, everything will be perfectly in line with the will of King Jesus. The trees, the streams, people, even spirits in the heavenlies, Paul says. The evil spirits, demonic powers will be defeated and subdued, and everything in all of creation, <clears throat> excuse me, in all of its aspects, will be brought under the life-giving reign of King Jesus. The chaos that our sin has brought into the world will be healed. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Order and harmony will be reestablished in all of creation when everything is subdued to King Jesus. That is where history is going. That is the end point. That's God, God's plan, and that's our hope. And that hope is absolutely certain. There is no chance that God's will for history uh, won't come to pass. Through Adam's sin, we lost paradise. But through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, paradise will be regained. All things will be healed and put right. God will heal his creation and his people of the destructive effects of sin and make everything as it should be. Charles Spurgeon captured it this way. He's paraphrased by two contemporary authors, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, when they write, Creation is a vast orchestra, poised with their bows drawn, their mallets raised, their fingers on the cello and violin strings, their mouths open as if ready to sing, and yet totally still, covered with cobwebs, and unable to accomplish the task for which they were gathered. The problem? The conductor has defaulted. He, like mankind, has failed to step up to the dais to direct the symphony of creation, and so now creation waits, both in frustration and eager expectation for the conductor to arrive and begin the music. Creation was going to sing this glorious song, this glorious melody, but because of Adam's sin, that song was cut short. It never happened. But through the second Adam, creation will once again be healed and restored. All things will be put right. And then creation will be what it 
was always meant to be. This is staggering, because I think and the older I get, the more I enjoy trees and plants and streams and things that grow. There's a kind of healing quality that nature has. And this is fallen nature. The best experiences of nature that you have in this world are nothing compared to the, that renewed creation that we will one day enjoy when Jesus returns. That's where human history is going. That's what God is doing. Sometimes in contemporary culture, those of us who hold to a biblical morality are described as being on the wrong side of history. Our morality is out of date, not with it. But we need to recognize that according to the teaching of this passage, those who live in opposition to King Jesus are perennially out of step with history, on the wrong side of history. History is going to the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Are you on the right side of history as judged by this passage? That's the question. Now, as we look to this future hope that we have as God's children, all things being made new, it's well worth asking ourselves, what should our priorities in life be in light of this hope? <clears throat> what should our priorities be in light of this hope? The Apostle Paul teaches us that those who don't have hope try to squeeze every last drop of pleasure from this life because this is it. You die, lights go out. And so they're scurrying around trying to get every last bit of pleasure to eat good food, to have nice vacations, to maximize pleasure and minimize comfort because this is their one chance to get it. 1 Corinthians 15.32, if the dead are not raised, if there's no hope, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. People without hope tend to be hedonists, pleasure seekers, pursuing the next vacation, the next meal. Their God is their belly, if I can quote Paul elsewhere. Uh, they live to binge watch Netflix, let me put it that way. Now, I, don't get me wrong, uh, God is the fountain of all pleasure. Food tastes good because he meant it to taste good. Pleasure, nature gives delight because he intended it to be pleasurable. God likes pleasure. It's his idea. The, the question is not, are you enjoying God's gifts? You should, and you should do so with gratitude and without guilt. But, but the, the question is, what is fundamental in your life in terms of your priorities? Is, it, is the pursuit of pleasure fundamental, or are you living for something higher than the pleasures of the table? Are you seeking to use this one short breath that you have, this one little life, to make maximal impact for King Jesus? Are you looking for ways to nudge your children and your spouse and your neighbors and your church, fellow church members and people at work towards Jesus Christ? Are you looking for ways to spend yourself because you have this hope? You don't need to cling to this life. There's a better life coming that liberates you to lay down your life for others and live courageously and live with a higher and nobler purpose than mere pleasure. Second question worth asking in light of this hope is not just what is our priorities, uh, but how do you view your life? People without hope complain a lot, give way to self-pity and discouragement very easily, because after all, this is their one chance to have their best life, and it's not happening. Do you feel self-pity when your career isn't what you thought it would be, when your marriage isn't what you thought it would be, uh, when the dream home you wanted isn't, it's not going to happen, right? Not in this market. Uh, like, as those realizations set in, that life won't be what you expected, do you feel, are you filled with self-pity and disappointment? Or you go, Jesus is coming back, everything's going to be made new. I don't need to squeeze out, like, every good thing from this life. I'll be just fine. Is there a, is, is there a cheerfulness even when life doesn't, didn't work out the way you expected it to? People who have hope don't engage in self-pity very easily or very readily. 
Our problem is that we are often very myopic, focusing just on our present circumstances, and we are losing sight of what's ahead of us. God is orchestrating all of this, bringing it to its climax, and the climax is the return of Jesus Christ, the renewal of all things. Is that a living hope for you? Number three. We ought to praise God, uh, and we see his goodness in the fact that he has claimed us as his people. Look at verse 11. Uh, verse 11 is a little bit tricky to uh, translate. The, the word, there, there is one word underneath the phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. So in English, we have obtained an inheritance. It's one word in Greek. And uh, it can, it, there can be one of two ideas. And to uh, get at the ambiguity, let me just, this would be a literal translation of that word in verse 11. We have been allotted. We have been allotted. If you think about that phrase, that can have one of two meanings. It, it can mean we have been given something, we have been allotted something, or it can mean we are the ones who are someone else's allotment. We are the ones who are allotted. Something is given to us, or we are the ones given to someone else. Both ideas are possible, and both ideas, frankly, are, are biblical. In my view, uh, because of the context here, God choosing a people for himself, the idea of God claiming us to be his possession is likely right in this context. <clears throat> uh, and and this, this idea of God choosing a people for his chosen possession, his treasured possession, is, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament many places. One place you could see it is Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Like, if God has claimed you as his treasured possession, you're blessed. The uh, New English translation translates this verse, I think, rightly this way. We, too, have been claimed as God's own possession. God wanted you to be his, and so he claimed you to be his. Uh, this section begins with our having a claim on God, if you look back to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father... Not just a father, our father. We have a claim on him. He's ours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a Lord, our Lord. There's a claim that we have on Jesus, but we have a claim on the Father and the Son because more fundamentally, the Father has a claim on us. Verse 11, God has claimed us for himself. It's a theme you see in Scripture. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And God has acted to make us his people according to his eternal plan, having been predestined according to, the, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God does what he pleases in heaven and on earth, and it pleased him to determine that we would be his people, that we would be his treasured possession. Your, your heart should soar at that. God wanted you. That's the, that's the inference we can make here. He delighted for you to be in his family, as we saw last week, for you to be a son or daughter. Once again, we, God is not reluctant and hesitant to bring you in. All right, I guess they can come. His heart isn't half open to you. His arms are wide open. He says, I want you. I want a relationship with you. I have claimed you as my own to be among my people. Call on me. Live with a robust confidence in me. I am your God and you are my child. So much of the misery in life is our failure to believe that. Is he really good? 
Is he really for me? I know I'm saved, but can I count on God to exhibit a boundless goodness towards me? Yes. Everything that God does is intended for your good. He's claimed you as his own, and he will bless you and bless you. How can he not? If, if God, let's reason together, if God has given his son for your redemption, how will he therefore not also give you everything that is good for you? So we should look at this and be astonished, the undeserved goodness of God, that he would claim us and want us for a people. Is that how you think of yourself? Someone that God wanted a relationship with and brought you close to himself according to his eternal plan. Number four. The final blessing that is described here is the blessing of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, in possessing the Holy Spirit, we have the guarantee of our inheritance. We're going to unpack all of that in a moment. But let me just point out, as I mentioned earlier, that our salvation is, again, a Trinitarian salvation. The Father decreed, the Son accomplished, and the Holy Spirit here applies and realizes and makes real in our experience that salvation. In him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Question, when did you get the Holy Spirit? According to this passage. When you believed. You get the Holy Spirit when you believe. When you heard the word of truth, and you placed your faith in Jesus, you were given the Holy Spirit, and you were sealed with the promised Spirit. Sealing uh, has the idea of an external mark that you put on something to show that it belongs to you. So, for instance, uh, farmers might seal their cattle with a sign showing that that cattle belongs to them. And the same, it's the same idea here. The gift of the Holy Spirit shows that we belong to God. It's not an external seal or sign. It's an internal and spiritual reality. But the possession of the Holy Spirit is a demonstration of the fact that we are the people of God. We belong to him. Furthermore, according to verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee can be translated uh, down payment. The idea is that you pay a certain amount of the total price initially as a pledge that you will complete the payment when the work is done. And the point here is God has given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge to communicate to us that we will certainly receive the full blessings of, sal of salvation, which are here described as our inheritance. Now, when you hear that word inheritance, and you think about the Old Testament, what do you think about? If you know something about the Old Testament. Promised land, Canaan, right. God's people, the, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, and their hearts were yearning for less desert and more lush land, right? They were yearning for home. They were yearning for the promised land. And when they eventually get there, each one is given an allotment, an inheritance, a stake in that good land. Every Israelite lives, albeit temporarily, under the shade of his fig tree, and life is good, right? That's the kind of picture. And we need to understand that we also, who are traveling through the wilderness of this life, we have, a, we have an inheritance prepared for us. And that inheritance is the new heavens and new earth, and God has given us an allotment in that new and better world. And God wants us to understand that that allotment is certain. It's not maybe we'll get it, maybe we won't get it. The fact that he has given us the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will take hold 
of that inheritance. See, for hope to strengthen you and empower you in the present, it has to be certain. If it's so-so, maybe it's not going to encourage you and energize you like it would if it were certain. So, for example, a parent, uh, the parents say to their child, when you turn 21, I'm going to try really hard to make sure that there is $100,000 in your bank account. It's like, well, good parents, love me. Maybe, maybe good, I don't know. Different philosophies of parenting. Um, but the fact that they're going to try and maybe and possibly, it's a good thing. It says something about my dad, but it's not sure, and so you can't count on it. You can't build your life on it. But what if they come to you uh, and they say, we've taken $100,000 and we've uh, set up an account. It's all there. It's there. It's just going to take a little time. When you're 21, you get it. But it's yours. See, that's a hope you can build your life on. It's certain. You can start planning with that $100,000 in view. You can start uh, cheerfully looking forward to become 20, becoming 21 because it's already there and it's already certain. That's how we should think about our inheritance in the world to come. It's there. It's certain. It's just a question, not of whether, but of when we will get that inheritance. What that means is that no matter how difficult, discouraging, and dark life gets, we know that that trial, those difficulties, those heartaches are temporary. They are short-lived. The darkness will pass and will give way to this inheritance. So regardless of where you are today, you should be of good cheer if you're in Jesus. Whatever heartaches you're experiencing at the present, these things are passing. And it is your destiny to conquer and triumph with Jesus. What should our response be to all of this? Notice that strewn about this whole section is the expression, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. As we see the undeserved goodness of God revealed in Jesus, our hearts should catch fire. And, and the response should be adoration and praise and a life of thanksgiving. If we find it difficult to praise, to worship, to delight in God, we need to, as we said last week, gaze more deeply at the wonder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Keep looking at Jesus until you start singing the praises of God. Praise should be the, the normal, the routine uh, theme of your life. Your heart should swell with thanksgiving and wonder and gratitude to God for everything that he's done. And there should be consistent praise throughout the week, culminating in what we do Sunday after Sunday. As God's redeemed, it is fitting that we should gather together and together sing the praises of our God, who set his love on us before the foundation of the world, who at the cost of his son's life has washed us and who has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit as, an, as a guarantee of this inheritance that we're going to one day enjoy. We survey that with Paul. Let us praise our God and do so with everything that is in us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would open up our eyes to stand in astonishment and wonder uh, at what you have done. Thank you, Father, for decreeing salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for accomplishing salvation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying salvation. We rejoice in your goodness, O oh God. Amen.